Hello, from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London, I'm John Murray-Brown. While politicians in Westminster wrangle over the shape of Britain's exit deal from the European Union, how are the mainstays of the economy coping with the continuing uncertainty? Katie Martin asked Patrick Jenkins, our financial editor, and Sarah Gordon, our business editor, how banks and businesses are preparing. So the clock is ticking towards the UK's exit from the European Union. An EY survey released earlier this week suggested that the financial services sector has shifted £800 billion in assets to Europe, a figure it described as conservative. Patrick, does that chime with what banks are telling you? How ready do you think the City of London is for D-Day? It probably does chime with the kind of broad picture of how much preparation the financial services sector has done. Let's put that figure in context quickly. This is a number that EY has calculated based on, I think, 20 companies that it's been keeping track of. That'll be, you know, a lot of the big moves. But probably when it's talking about a conservative number, it means that the true number is quite a bit bigger than that. Nonetheless, in the broad context, it is a relatively small amount if you think that the UK banking sector alone has about 8 trillion of assets. The UK-based asset management industry has another 8 trillion of assets. And this is across financial services, these moves. So it's probably lowish single-digit percentage of the assets that are in the city have been moved out. On to the second point is, you know, why have these assets been moved out? It's because, actually, the financial services sector, probably more than any other sector of the British economy, has been preparing very thoroughly for Brexit. It knows that if there is a no-deal Brexit, it has to have a chunk of its operations, that portion of its operations that relate to EU clients based in the EU27. And that means predominantly in Frankfurt, in Paris, in Dublin, and so on, so that they can continue to service those clients. And yeah, I mean, I think clearly there will be some disruption around the fringes of financial services, but it's pretty well placed for continuing business relatively seamlessly, we think, (laughs) after the 29th of March, even if there's a no deal. So one of the things that people in markets always say to me is that, you know, the idea that the UK is going to lose its status is a little overblown to the extent that the banks will stay here if the asset managers stay here. If the money stays in London, the banks will stay in London. Absolutely. You've got to think there are many reasons why the city has grown up as the preeminent financial services centre in Europe and to some degree in the world. And that is largely, as you say, because there's a massive asset management centre here. There's a homegrown pensions industry that is very big, bigger than most other places in Europe. And so it's a natural magnet for all of that business. Even if the EU27 can't be serviced in terms of client products and services from London going forward, there's a lot of business that will be serviced from here still. And if there's any kind of deal, then even the EU business should be serviceable from here. So I think there's nobody really, even the most bearish commentators are not predicting that the city is going to be overtaken by Paris or Frankfurt in terms of financial services centres, certainly not anytime soon. I suppose if you take a very bleak view, you could say, well, if you go back 20, 30, 40 years to the time before the city really expanded due to things like the invention of eurobonds 
and the beneficial impact of the US Sarbanes-Oxley rules post the 2000 boom and bust in the dot-com market and the transfer that came as a result of that of a lot of IPOs to the UK. Those things boosted the city. And if you think, okay, Brexit's going to boost relatively other financial services markets, such as Frankfurt and Paris, and probably New York as well, then over time, it could be that they start to dominate. But there's a lot of ifs and there's a lot of time, I think. Do you have any sense, or is it too early to say, what European financial services will look like after the UK has left? Because another thing that people in the city often say is actually the UK has been pretty much running financial services in the EU for the past 30 odd years. When it becomes a more French flavoured financial services regulatory framework, what are we going to be thinking of aligning to or not here? You know, what's it going to look like? Yeah, this is one of the real peculiarities of the whole Brexit debate. Firstly, you know, those who say, well, we've had to follow Brussels rules all this time, we'll be freed up. It's actually, as you say, certainly as relates to financial services regulation, fairly nonsensical, because the UK has been the driving force for those regulations largely, with a couple of exceptions. The second point, as you say, there's a strong belief, I think probably rightly, that the French are likely to be the most influential force on EU 27 regulations post-Brexit. Now, clearly, if we have a no-deal Brexit, then it's kind of almost irrelevant because we'll be going our own way. And for better or worse, what happens in the EU27 is relatively unimportant. If we do do the deal or anything like the deal that Theresa May has proposed, that does tie us to maintaining equivalent standards to the EU. And that's where it gets interesting, because if that means, and nobody really knows, but if that means that we essentially have to follow rules that Brussels, i.e. the Paris-influenced EU rules, the direction they go in, then that is potentially negative for the city. If we choose to break with those rules, then we potentially break that equivalence agreement and potentially therefore lose access to the EU27 markets. So it's a bit of a bind, which is why the city, although they would obviously much rather a deal than no deal, is a little bit equivocal about the merits of the Theresa May deal. Yeah, checkmate. So, Sarah, the financial services industry has done its homework here. It's pretty much as ready as it can be. What about the UK business community more broadly? Well, editors in the newsroom, as you know, Katie, often ask, what does business think about this or what is business doing about that? Of course, business in the UK is an amorphous and many-headed creature. The divisions really lie between big companies and small companies. If you are a big multinational, whether you are a bank or a manufacturer, a car manufacturer, for example, you have had plenty of time and lots of money to prepare contingency plans for a no deal. So you've employed the relevant lawyers, consultants to come up with scenario plans and you've taken your decisions. And at this point, most of those, if not all of those large multinationals will have implemented contingency plans. You know, it became clear, certainly in the autumn, that they simply couldn't afford to wait and see whether a deal is struck and what kind of deal that was going to be. 
even though among those larger manufacturers, there's still vast areas of total lack of clarity, which have made it very difficult for them to plan. Financial services is such a human capital business. You know, you can move money and you can move people much more easily than you can move manufacturing, you know, factories where you where you make things. So some of the contingency plans that car manufacturers have put in place, for example, would be very detrimental for the UK economy. You know, some factories are already on slow time. People like Toyota are talking about potentially having to close factories for at least some period of time if there is a no deal. And then, of course, you have the issues about transport. We know this week there was an exercise undertaken by the government where they mocked up what it would be like if customs procedures were very much more onerous in the event of a no deal. And, of course, some of the more lurid headlines were true, which is that lorries could potentially, for example, wait for up to six days to complete a process which at the moment is almost entirely frictionless and can take a matter of hours. So if you are, for example, a car manufacturer, it doesn't matter what you've done yourself, you are going to be stymied by a lack of preparation by the government, frankly. That's what worries them, right? They can put all their ducks in a row, they can talk to all their suppliers, they can make sure everything's ready, but they know what they can't control and they can't control the UK infrastructure effectively. Yes, and that's enormously important. I mean, I think just to nuance that point, one of the things that they are worried about is precisely their supply chains. And although some companies like Siemens have been very proactive in really trying to help certainly the end bits of their supply chains prepare as well, smaller companies are finding it extremely difficult to prepare. And I think this is one of the things that the large companies are worried about. And when people say blithely, oh, it's okay, you know, all the big companies have prepared... Big companies depend on small companies and they depend on retailers and they depend on people driving vans to come and deliver things to them. And if some of those links in the chain go down, that is going to have an impact. So I think, yes, there's a lot of unknowns over which all companies have no control. There's also, I think, a really important point is that smaller companies are really I think it's no exaggeration to say almost totally unprepared for a no deal. And that's for several reasons. One, they don't have the resources or often the headspace to prepare for something that may not happen. I mean, the idea that you can sit down and write a scenario for your two-person business. I spoke to a really fantastic couple who run an insect repellent company in Nailsworth, and they are one of the very few small companies that has done some contingency planning, and theirs would involve either selling, Mm -hmm. quite simply, to one of their customers, in fact, probably in Italy, or they would move their operations lock, stock and barrel to the continent and they, the couple, would move with them. So that's obviously, as a contingency plan for the UK economy, that's not great. But they are an exception to the rule. Most smaller companies feel incredibly worried but simply do not know what they should be doing to prepare or do not have the resources to prepare even if they did know. What sort of guidance are they getting? Very little. I mean, as you know, the government released its so-called no-deal technical papers last year. They were short, they were vague, they said a lot of what wouldn't be covered and what agreements wouldn't be in place, but they'd said very little about what you therefore should do. And one of the things that I feel, having now covered this since the run-up to the referendum, I mean, businesses have been calling since before the referendum to be given more support, more guidance and more advice from the government. And the government, whatever happens in the big world of, you know, the negotiations in Brussels or the little world of Westminster, it is absolutely shocking that the government has not been prepared to provide a one-stop shop for advice 
a telephone number that people can ring. I mean, you are told to contact your relevant department. If you ring your relevant department, they will refer you to DEXU, the Department for Exiting the EU. DEXU will refer you back to the department. You have nowhere to go and no one to ask. And that really is shocking. Mm. It's obviously a very different picture for the little guys. Thanks both of you very much. That was Katie Martin talking to Patrick Jenkins and Sarah Gordon. We'll be back with another news feature tomorrow. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com offer. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.